Hello, everybody, and welcome to this Drum Network podcast. I'm senior reporter for tech at The Drum, Chris Sutcliffe. A couple of weeks ago now, we did an episode all about behavioral marketing. And over the course of that discussion, it became very clear that there was so much more to dig into. And so I'm delighted to announce that this is effectively part two in a very short series all about behavioral marketing, its tech, its techniques and its practices, and what they can actually offer to our clients. As you can probably tell from the title of this week's episode, Influence Versus Control, things get a little bit heavier in this episode than they did in the previous one. We talk about moral implications for doing behavioral marketing, and more importantly, when we can accurately model behavior, and more importantly, when we actually need to look at things like context to determine what our audience is primed to do. Without further ado, I'm gonna ask my guests to introduce themselves so we can get into this fascinating topic in more detail. Thanks, Chris. Uh, yes, I'm Alexei. I'm a communication strategy lead at Reading Room, which is a digital agency in the UK. Um, uh, so as part of my daily life, I do come across, you know, aspects of my work where I'm looking to persuade people and change behavior. Um, but uh, the other reason I guess I've been invited along here is that I'm currently studying MSc uh, Behavioral Decision Science at Kingston. Very nice. Fantastic. And Tara? Hello, I'm Tara Austin. I'm a consulting partner in the Ogilvy Behavioural Science Practice. Um, I was at Ogilvy when we set up the Behavioural Science Practice 10 years ago now and ran the first ever experiment. We like to think of ourselves as the kind of private sector nudge unit, uh, but housed within obviously one of the greatest ad agencies in the world. Nice, fantastic. And that is going to get fed straight back to your boss. So expect a raise. And Roy? Hi, uh, my name is Roy Armale. I work at VML YNR Commerce right now, which is a commerce practice within VML YNR, part of WPP, uh, same network that uh, Tara and Ogilvy are part of. Um, I sit on the WPP Tech Council, um, and uh, I head up innovation and uh, everything related to kind of new technology associated with it. Part of the reason I guess that I'm here is my educational background is originally in economics as an undergrad and then uh, organizational and consumer psychology as, as, a, as a master's. But I'm also in the middle of my diploma in artificial intelligence right now at Oxford, which is um, a program with uh, that, that WPP has created with, with Oxford University. And we've been tackling stuff like this. And so when, when Tara and the team in, in London set up the behavioral sciences um, unit, we started listening a lot to the way that they were working and we started applying that to uh, to shopper behavior. And so I developed a startup um, that now has technology used by WPP that understands uh, human behavior and applies it to predicting whether an ad is going to work or not. Nice. Fantastic. Well, actually, Roy, you've just mentioned something there which I'd like to pick up on, which is this idea that it's all about understanding human behavior. And this is now the second part in our kind of behavioral science um, podcast series. And in the very first part, we heard from some real experts, but they had a grab bag of experience from very different parts of the market, from scientific backgrounds, you know, through to AI researchers. And it really does seem now that it's this big coalescence of of disciplines that have really come together to, you know, make sure that behavioral marketing and behavioral sort of sciences are working for the marketing industry. But Alexei, to begin with, then I wondered, maybe you could take us through what are some of the the basics that kind of the basic tools that people are using to ensure that we are doing behavioral science right in the marketing industry. 
Well, that's an interesting question because I don't know. I, I think because it's, you know, obviously um, behavioral science and behavioral economics has been around for decades, but in terms of, uh, you know, it, more recently how it, st it started to emerge and be applied more directly to things like advertising and marketing practice, um, it's still quite embryonic, I think. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, I, I think in the, in the context of advertising and marketing, really, you're talking about persuasion mainly and, and getting people to buy a certain product. Um, and, and I think uh, there, there aren't necessarily um, kind of ethical frameworks or best practice frameworks out there. I know that Tara and Roy probably have a completely different view on that, you know, but working in the field. Um, but but as a kind of a, a lay person, I guess, um, you know, coming more from, uh, so more from communications, but, but now kind of studying behavioral science academically to look at applying it. Um, I think there are only a few kind of, um, you know, uh, marketing organizations out there that uh, take it quite seriously in terms of best practice and, and having kind of established frameworks. I think it's much more established really at the moment within uh, kind of government policy and, uh, you know, looking at things like how do we get behavior change to benefit the climate and, and you know, encourage people to take care of their health. Absolutely. But you, you mentioned kind of the word persuasion there. And it, in the last session, it took me the entire, I suppose, the entire episode to coax that out of our participants to, to say that, in fact, you can use these techniques for a, for a marketing bent. And so, Tara, would you agree then that like, with uh, Alexei's statement that it is kind of embryonic in a lot of ways, that we are still in the kind of the, the foothills of what is going to be possible for marketing from behavioral science? Absolutely. And we've been in those foothills for for last 10 years, at least uh, 12, going back to uh, Kahneman and, and, and Thaler and, and the kind of guys that really kicked off uh, this field. And all that time, it's just got more and more and more exciting and there's been more and more application. And, and we've certainly seen, you know, government at the forefront of that, uh, the Obama administration, the Cameron administration really at the forefront. And then uh, people like us coming in and, and creating this field in the private sector, um, applying some of this thinking to good marketing, as well as much more besides uh, the work that we do, we, we might work for a private company on health and safety behaviors. We've done a lot of work for Kimberly Clark on getting making their factories safer places, um, right through to, yes, working with brands and businesses on how to uh, influence their, their consumers in the way that they want to see. We're at the beginning. Um, it's interesting to me. I think that people are starting to get more and more familiar with uh, personality profiling, yes, but even um, a more interesting or a more accessible front end, which is uh, we, we have a tool where we do personality profiling. Um, we look at um, various different, really big, important psychological measures to understand an audience. And I, I often describe it to clients by saying it's a bit like Netflix if you don't have Netflix level of data, because actually um, Netflix is marketing its content to you all the time. And um, I think we've all become quite familiar with the idea that when I'm looking at my Netflix, I might get all these lovey-dovey kissy pictures <laughs> of uh, romantic couples that they know I'm going to click on because I'm a sucker. Um, <laughs> and my dad might get the same content. He might get stranger things, but instead of the, the cutesy photo, he's got some kind of monster in it. Um, and I think we're all familiar now with the idea that 
we are being targeted based on data that organizations have about us um, in order to market themselves. And, and in a company like Netflix, I don't think that bothers anyone. I think, no. in fact, they find it kind of intriguing um, and it's it's not remotely a problem. And like I say, we're we're working with clients on, a, on our tool to give them that same kind of level of insight around different segment segments of their audience, different personality profiling, uh, but without them having to have all of the kind of de- data that Netflix has. Um, and I think there's, this is really every project we do is certainly trying to push the field forward, uh, but to do it in the right way. And uh, to Alexi's point, you know, there are models, we have an ethical framework that we use and, uh, you know, only working with the most honorable companies <laughs> in the world, of course. Nice, fantastic. But before we get too far into that kind of uh, personalization and segmentation, which is going to be the bulk of the discussion of this podcast, Roy, I just want to then, obviously, based on what you're doing, kind of the the research side of it, how far into this do you think we can expand, as as Tara said, as kind of the private sector version of what's been going on in in comms elsewhere? Um, The private sector is way ahead. (laughs) <laughs> um, nice. This is yeah. This this is not a surface thing. So so I'm gonna I'm gonna agree and disagree with what they said in terms of the dimensions. Let's set the parameters of what we mean by embryonic or not. Um, it is embryonic if you look at it in terms of economies of scope. Have different parts of the private sector and different industries and different uh, categories and and functions within the industries adopted it from a breadth point of view. No, that's still at the embryonic stage. And even within those different uh, categories and so on, the individuals that are aware of all of this are are few and far between because Mm -hmm. of the level of complexity and the level of interest that's associated with it. Now, if I take that and and I apply it to depth and and I look at economies of scale within the industries and categories and so on and functions that have adopted it, no, the economy of scale has shot up uh, in the last, last, um, I don't know, eight years, let's say. And the reason for that is what Tara was talking about in terms of the uh, the Netflix situation. We have that data. We have that data on 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 people. And honestly, the ethical framework that we need to get into is understanding where we need to set limits on the acquisition and the usage of the data. And we'll probably get to this a little later because I'm not pro limiting on on acquisition of data because it doesn't do much. You'll just find another way to get it. But in terms of the permissioned usage of data and the intent with it, you know, there should be a whole framework associated with that. But when I look at kind of the field that I come from, so I said that I've mentioned VMLY in our commerce and WPP and a whole bunch of, you know, pieces of the company. Mm. In commerce or in shopper marketing, we are not very concerned with the profile of the individual. We kind of don't care who they are right? We're very contextual in the way that we're going to target people. The easiest explanation for this is if I want to sell a bunch of ice cream cones to a hundred thousand people, okay. is it this easier is, for me to Can I just say out? this is not the example I thought we were going to get, but absolutely go for it. <laughs> well, let's keep, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping it light, I guess. So <laughs> instead of, I want to sell ice cream cones to a uh, hundred thousand people. I've got two options. I can go into the profiling point of view. Do they like ice cream? Are they the type of person to like ice cream? What kind of flavors are they into? All of that stuff. Or I can go fully contextual. Are they at Disneyland on a hot afternoon after lunch? And if I if I check the amount of effort that I need to put in to sell that ice cream cone, is it easier to sell to the contextual uh, group that is a cross-section of multiple profiles 
or to the individual profile across uh, that has a cross section of contexts from a shopper marketing perspective it is easier to sell to the context than it is uh, to the profile and this that makes sense. this comes to yeah this comes to biases and heuristics of you know the the Dan Ariely version of the Kahneman uh, fast and slow brain stuff where he talks about the decision making um, linked to organ donation. I love that example that he uses in one of his TED Talks. So so when you look at that and you see that we're using machine learning systems to understand these contexts really, really well, and then apply it at scale to dynamic content optimization and dynamic content production, which is literally a system mm. putting ads together for your context. And you look at the AI system that I was talking about a little bit earlier that can predict its impact depending on the context that you're going to show it in. You can see that the scaled application of this is hitting millions and millions of people. So yes, embryonic from a scope perspective, but yes, scaled very much. Uh, at the same time within within some of the areas that makes sense and we've we've heard about the kind of terms around personalization segmentation for i mean they've been part of the marketing landscape for you know almost as long as there has been a marketing landscape i just wondered then before we get really into all the things that you've you've teed up there which thank you very much for i wondered if we could maybe almost explain what we mean when we're talking about segmentation and personalization. So could we go around almost and and suggest uh, an example of who you think is doing this really really well we've obviously had the netflix angle. But which other brands, which other sectors do you think are doing segmentation and personalization incredibly well at the moment? Well, I, I should say that in terms of the kind of profiling that we're talking about in terms of psychometric personality yeah. profiling, we're certainly going like the whole mission is going well beyond demographics. Um, so we often show clients a, a slide where you're talking about two 78-year-old men They've both been married twice. They both live in a castle. Now, you could argue that's that's quite a tight demographic, but one of them is <laughs> Charles and the yeah. other one is Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah. And the profiling that we do aims to uh, explore these personality types. So looking at the Ocean Big Five personality score, where you're looking at openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, introversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism, how, how open or how vulnerable people are to emotion. Um, and we actually combine that with data, with, with also profiling on um, worldview, how hierarchical you are versus how egalitarian. If you're more hierarchical, you might be more open to a message from a doctor about vaccine um, compliance than you are perhaps from uh, your peer environment or from an influencer. Um, and we look at cultural cognition, which is a, a bunch of different measures, but it, including things like um, time state, how much are you living in the present versus actually you're skewed towards your future. And if you're not very skewed towards thinking about your future and investing in that, targeting you with um, stuff, your pension might not necessarily work or might not work in the same way. We might need to change that. And so with that test, I mean, I can really only speak from the, the clients we're working with. Um, I can tell, I, and there's a lot I can't tell you, um, but there's, a, I mean, I know, for example, um, that certain personality types lean into particular flavors that high in one category, that those who are more conscientious um, actually do prefer mint and some of these flavors that you might associate actually mm. with cleanliness, um, that uh, those that are, associate, are more conservative do associate with some of the more conservative flavor profiles um, for this particular category. Uh, well, uh, I'm glad you came to me last because I was pondering over that for quite some time, thinking, who is doing this right? I, I think, uh, from my perspective, that the organizations that are doing this the best, for better or worse, 
are big tech, you know, the social networks um, are doing this uh, to the nth degree. And, and that is, you know, that can be used for good, but it's also, you, we can see some potentially damaging effects coming out of that. Um, so I guess, you know, taking it back to a sort of ethical standpoint, um, you know, it's really down to the objective uh, of that personalization that that, will, that should then drive how we approach best practice. And I, I think um, that there are kind of good ways of doing that and there are bad ways of doing mm. that. And, and at the moment, there, there isn't any kind of uh, kind of benchmark for what is good and bad. I think, unfortunately, the, the technology has, uh, you know, as usual, kind of advanced way way faster than any of the discussions around ethical frameworks. And what we've got is is a machine guided by a single objective, mm. um, you know, driving that personalization for that single objective, which is most of the time to grab attention or to get click. I think one of the biggest challenges is just is is transparency, visibility. So the the one of the frameworks that we use is actually called the it's the for good. It's relatively new for good framework, um, nudging for good, and it's just a little little uh, acronym around fairness. So making sure that practices aren't discriminatory and that you don't. And I I, I have heard at least of um, I think it was one instance of people getting a different kind of discount depending on whether they were opening something from a Firefox or a Safari browser type thing. Um, if you're opening it on a Mac, you didn't get as big a discount, that kind of so discriminatory behaviors, but you could see how those could really um, ladder up to something really quite awful. So fairness, um, openness, but the transparency with which people can even know that they're being marketed to. Uh, and I think we've seen uh, evolution in, in that. But I, but then again, actually, I mean, a lot of the work we do, um, and it might be even more analog, um, mm. is about behavior change without it necessarily feeling like marketing or branding. Um, but realistically, a lot of that is is government work. Um, so it's it's I think as long as there is no sort of hidden hidden agenda there. Um, and then there's things like respect, um, making sure that the, the whatever we're doing respects people's autonomy in in some way, and uh, and 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 the goals. So fairness, openness, respect, and making sure that the goals are, you know, the right ends in themselves. And I think in any ethical debate, for me, that is, I'm you know, I'm a libertarian, and and that's the most important aspect for me is um, is this in the service of. <laughs> Of the good, um, and are we using uh, appropriate tools along that way? But but is this is the end right? And that's why we don't work with gambling companies, and we don't work on tobacco in the work that we do here. Um, but then you've got opinions, uh, and and these are critical. And I think even more critical now in the. Uh, we've got our own reputations to manage, which is why we don't work with those kinds of companies, um, of course. Uh, and then options, do policies, um, you know, are the policies kind of warranted? Do we actually need to do this? Is it uh, appropriate? And in the in the aim of selling stuff, then it, you know, inevitably, yeah, we do need to do it. Um, and then have we got the, uh, you know, our are the powers that are being used being used by the right people within an organization? It's delegation. So fairness, openness, respect, goals, opinions, options, delegation. These are all the things that we kind of consider. Um, and, and I think it's probably arguably more important in the, in the space of public policy than it is actually with, with the work that we do. Yeah, very possibly. I mean, very probably, actually, because those have sort of wider ramifications. But let's say then, just for argument's sake, 
that everything is kind of above board. We're, we're aware that we're doing this in a kind of ethical manner. Roy, what would you say are some of the big technological leaps forward that have been made in and around actually doing kind of segmentation and personalization? You know, is that are we now on a, on the on the timeline where AI is playing not just a kind of a, a key role but an integral role, a role in all this? That's a really good question. All right, first let's let's describe what we're talking about in terms of AI within this context, because a lot of people listening will go into machine sentience and, uh, <laughs> and you know, you know Terminator type uh, type thinking. So um, why was Terminator the one you went for first? That's so strange. <laughs> oh, because Skynet is like the first thing that comes to mind. It's like the machines are alive. <laughs> So, uh, so, so, so in this context, machine machine learning and AI uh, can be defined as a very powerful recommendation engine. It will point you in the right direction for a decision that you need to take to be able to perform a specific task. Um, and as a recommendation engine, it is not an, a it is not a means of automation. It's a means of augmenting the decision making process uh, that's occurring. That's the power of of, of machine learning and AI. Uh, realistically, because you can do a lot of automation without needing AI. The AI part, the interesting part of it, the useful part of it is that it's able to take tons of structured data, tons of structured data, and find patterns to be able to give you recommendations on outputs. The challenge in there is that the, the ML system, the machine learning system, will never understand causality. It will only understand correlation. It will only know that these two things seem to happen at the same time. These five things seem to be connected with each other in the way that they work. These things happen to be uh, working in parallel. And so you've got to understand that correlation and then and then extrapolate causality out of it and then take a decision. So let's simplify everything I've said into something a little bit more useful. We're talking about segmenting people. Let's put segmentation on the left and let's put cohorts on the right. They're kind of synonyms, but let's separate them just for one sec. When you talk about the way a decision gets taken, and Tara, please correct me on this, and Alexi as well, if I'm saying something completely out of line, but the decision-making process goes from perception to intent to action. What I perceive to be the thing that I would like to do were I in that situation is one thing very related to my profile and my self-perception. My intent is... Once I get into that situation, before I have to perform the action, I will have multiple means of performing that action, and I will kind of have a decision to be able to take. Then action is what I end up actually doing. For example, if I asked you, you're on your way to work, you get to the building, it takes a long time for the elevator to get there. You see someone, you wave at them, they close the elevator, they ignore you, and they go upstairs. Right. If I ask you how you would behave when you meet them upstairs, I am asking you a hypothetical question. You will give me your perception of things. If I ask you that same question after the doors closed, you will give me your intent. And then if I watch your actions when you get upstairs and you meet that person face to face, I will observe your actions. What machine learning is really good at is observing the actions and correlating them with each other and handing us patterns. What Tara is talking about, which is a lot of manual work, is us being able to understand people on the left side in terms of what their perception and intent are going to be based on the segments that we've done. And the connection between two things, these two things is where the truth ends up being, because the left will give you the tendencies while the right will tell you what actually happened. An easy example of that is if I go up to my mom and I and I and I and I describe her to you. She is a very nice person, very mild mannered, super nice and everything. Mm. Yeah. And then we went to Turkey and we went to the open market. 
I have seen people negotiate. But man, <laughs> she was breaking them down into pieces to get the discount on that on that leather jacket. Like, oh man, it was it was hardcore. It That's was impressive. hardcore. She was in there. Yeah, the gloves were off, right? <laughs> Does that mean that my mom is not a, a a toned down person usually? If I defined her within her psychographic measures, would she fall in to mm. the space of that? No, but it means that the context that she was in drove that particular behavior. Just like a person who's super nice on a regular basis, if you cut them off while they're trying to get into, into their lane and they're late to something that's important to them and so on, road rage is going to take over, not because they're that kind of person, but because of the situation. There will be some people with more tendency towards road rage and some with less. And that's why the truth is in between. And that's where kind of this comes together and our ethical standards become very important. If we're able to do so much action-based observation and we start linking it to actual profiles of people where we know their identities, where we know all of that, we're going to have a lot of information that allows us to control people that we shouldn't have, that we just mm shouldn't have and so we look at cohort control control is a very strong word i mean influence perhaps but control is very strong so you can uh, the way i look at it and this is very much an opinion it cannot be taken as fact in any way shape or form (laughs) is you influence individuals but you control masses and so when you when you go to the level of, of, of having a conversation with an individual, they are so multidimensional. There's an influence to the decision-making process and their perception and so on. I completely agree with you. See how they behave when a riot breaks out. And you see that it's, you know, you look at how a concert works and it's, it's closer. When you observe concert behavior, it is closer to fluid dynamics than it is to human behavior. Before we sort of charge headlong into the discussion about sort of uh, about control and sort of mass communications and all this kind of stuff. I wondered, Alexi, what do you see as being almost the the end game, the rather the end goal of all this? Because it's it's fine to pour um research time and money into actually making sure that we can do this effectively. But when we're working on behalf of clients, say, what can we actually tangibly deliver that isn't, I suppose, um that is only possible through this kind of segmentation, personalization, and ultimately kind of back down to that behavioral aspect. Yeah, I think that's a very good point, Chris, because a lot of what we've talked about today, um, you know, a lot of the things that we've, the end games that we've talked about can be done through, through what I guess you would class as traditional means. So, you know, personalization and segmentation isn't a, a kind of new thing that's emerged out of a, the behavioral science discipline. It's something that's been used in marketing and advertising for, you know, again, decades. Um, I think the layer that behavioral science puts on top is this understanding of um, how people behave in different contexts. Um, and, you know, so, uh, you know, Roy was talking about kind of intent versus behavior. That's, a, again, a really good point. Uh, one thing that we kind of know, uh, you know, the, the one thing you, the one of the first things you learn about, um, you know, behavior in studying behavioral science is that there's a massive gap between what we intend to do consciously and deliberate over and actually how we behave. And and I think um, uh, that that that's the thing that we are trying to kind of match together, I guess, by understanding uh, more about how people behave and why they behave in certain contexts and what the drivers are for that. So I think the end game really is trying to kind of match up or close that gap between intent and behavior. And, and one of the only ways you can do that is by 
understanding how you know the majority of the decisions that we make are made unconsciously and how how those mechanisms work so that the, we, we can help design a kind of decision environment that allows them to make the right choice i mean that that's why it comes back back to ends right it all comes down to ends and what is the goal um, that we're we're trying to achieve right because the terrible truth is that science and behavioral science amongst many of the sciences is revealing to us uh, that we are, you know, creatures that operate on our subconscious, that we are in, in our system to brain, we're conscious of thinking, we, we're, we are, uh, we're conscious of thought, and that's where we think we are living, but actually, and that's where we think our agency comes from, but of course it doesn't. Uh, I, I, my favorite analogy for system one and two is Jonathan Haidt's analogy that system one is the oval office and system two is the press office. Mm. Uh, and actually the, the terrible that's truth nice. is that we are all the press office and that we don't like that. We don't like being told, hang on a minute, somebody else is actually in charge here because it's still you, you are the oval office, but you know, there are factors at work um, that can influence you. And I, I would say influence rather than control, because I think this that's not it's not new to be able to influence even, you know, especially that mob behavior. You know, Nuremberg had its role in terms of influence as much as control. None of that is uh, new. We are very susceptible to those kind of social norming uh, and, and to terrible things that we're capable of doing because of that. Um, I think the, the the question becomes now, you know, are we, uh, is what we are doing in terms of influencing one another the right thing? Is it the right end? Is it okay to sell this product to somebody? Um, is it going to help them or harm them? Um, and, and making sure that we are not using using um, these kinds of principles to, con to control one another or to influence one another in a way that actually we wouldn't want. Uh, I've done a lot of work on the um, nicotine cessation, uh, the nicotine category, and um, people regularly use language. They, they're aware they're addicted and they will say, I want to trick myself. I want a placebo. They want the psychology, the, the, the rise of noom um, in terms of weight loss um, has really come from that argument that people want to understand that subconscious psychology so that they can nudge themselves so that they can influence themselves. And I, I think where we're seeing this field going is that it's certainly not just going to belong in the behavioral science practice here. It's going to be in every, in every school and that we are going to be teaching people what we now know, what it is to be a human being. Um, and whether that will make any difference, because we're very aware already from the data that people, even when they know they're being nudged, uh, it doesn't sort of stop uh, the efficacy of that nudge necessarily. Um, but, you know, I think we're at the forefront of working out what it is to be human, what it is to influence one another and, you know, like what the right ends are, what the right mm. goals are. Um, it becomes the most important factor. Um, can I can I just add something actually, Chris? Yeah, as well, just just um, to to add to what Tara's saying. I think you know, in t in t talking about end goals and you know what what's the ultimate kind of objective of of why do, why do we want to start applying this this knowledge and this learning, is uh, is that um, it's actually extremely hard to change behaviour on an individual level in the way that you would like them to behave a person to behave it's extremely hard to do that there are so many uh, you know one of the things again that you kind of uh, you understand having uh, uh, sort of 
gained knowledge in behavioral science is, is that there are so many different complex uh, contextual factors going on that, that create that behavior in that moment that it's extremely hard to do that. Um, so one of the things that segmentation and personalization should be should be kind of working towards is allowing us to, uh, on an individual level, change that that choice environment for that individual so that it allows them to make the right decision uh, based on all of the different factors, psychological or otherwise, that are going on for that individual at that time. I think that that's a great point. And I think that's when, to use a very bad kind of comparison, but that's when a, a nudge becomes a shove. Mm. Right. We talk about nudging people. At what point does it move from a small nudge to a big shove in a certain direction? At what point does it become a huge push or a bulldozer kind of pushing you through to the side? And 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 what Alexia is saying is, is true, which is there are so many factors that determine it, which means that the more data you can collect and the stronger your computing power to be able to analyze more of those factors, the more powerful your nudge is going to become and the closer it's going to get to a shove. That's why, you know, you, you, you look at people that can get under your skin fastest are your closest friends and your family. They know so much about you. They have all of that data intrinsically, right? They've acquired it over years and years of, of being with you and being around you. And you, they can say that one thing that'll get a rise out of you. And it'll be a very, very small thing. And you will completely change your perspective on something or change your mood through through a through a simple, you know, through a simple word or even a look. <laughs> from a from a from a mother can can change your week. You're like, oh, but my mom looked at me that way because wasn't she proud of what I did? Like the, <laughs> this whole thing just crushes because of that because of that one that one kind of kind of moment. You can you can tell the Mediterranean mother relationship. <laughs> and, uh, what I'm saying here, but and but but that's where that's where things become really important from a from a from from what Tara was saying in terms of means and intent, and then and then what we end up doing. When we start acquiring that level of data that allows us to shove instead of nudge, that allows us to understand that context so well that you can that you can push a person completely in a certain direction. And you see that in in micro systems right now. Go watch a person going through one of those uh, horror houses, right? And you will see that every like you will find three or four cohorts of behavior to to what's going on every time they mm. get this kind of jump scare and so on that is an extremely environmentally charged situation thank you all so much for taking part in this discussion i'm going to end it there because we could speak for hours about this but you've also given me the uh, the title for the episode as well which is definitely going to be influence versus control alexi tara and roy thank you so much for taking part in this discussion if the audience wants to get in contact with you where's the best place for them to do it alexi well they can get into contact with me uh using my email so alexi.lee at readingroom.com thanks and tara tara.austin austin like texas with an i at ogilvy.com. Very nice. And Roy? Uh, on LinkedIn is, is the easiest way to get through. So Roy Armale, A-R-M-A-L-E. 
Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Thanks so much, uh, Alexei, Tara and Roy for taking part in this discussion. Like I said, we'll have to get you back in another couple of years so we can see how all the predictions have shaken out. But for now, thank you so much for taking part and thank you to the listeners as well. Please do stick around. Go to thedrum.com for more information about this topic, about everything that we write about. And hopefully we'll see you again very shortly.